0: Hey, I don't, you know, if you're under 25 years old, I saw some arms go up very slowly for somebody under 25. (laughs) If you're under 25, you don't remember September 11th, 2001. So uh, just a thought, you know, um, today's September 11th and... And uh, it's reached a point now where it hasn't been so long that it's like D-Day, this day in history that you read about in your history books so much. But it's been so long that it's not at the front of our minds anymore, which is a good thing. It means there's been some healing and some change and all of that kind of stuff. But I just wanted to uh, point out the fact that... uh, It is an incredible blessing to see what has happened between then and now that we're safe, we're free, that uh, God continues to bless and and, uh, take care of us. So um, I just want to take a minute and uh, open in prayer, thanking God for that, and then we'll get to his word this morning. Lord, we just want to say thank you. Thank you that um, in your incredible grace you have protected so many. We still grieve over the loss that is now 21 years ago. Um, and we know that there are families today who are still hurting because of that, um, that were directly affected. And Father, we also realize that world peace is a tenuous thing and that the nations rage and yet you hold everything together. So we just come to you again in thanksgiving and praise and worship to say glory to your name and to plead with you to continue to bring peace to our world, to protect us, and to continue to give us the freedom to worship you and to share the grace of Christ with others. So we're thankful and we praise you this morning as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We just finished up a series on the church, and that series was really sort of... Um, the macro picture, right? I I I talked a lot about what does the Bible have to say about what the church is, who we are, what we're supposed to be about, and all of that kind of stuff. And that was a sermon or a series of sermons I could have preached and would have been comfortable preaching in any Bible-believing church in the country, or in the world for that matter. It was, a, it was a picture of what the body of Christ is intended to look like wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever your nationality, whatever your race, whatever your gender, whatever your social status. The church is the church, and the body and the Word of God describes it that way. And, and so this is sort of a new sermon series that we're beginning today, but really it's sort of like these two series that are bridged because we're going from the macro picture of what does it look like to be the church to what does it look like to be this church? What does it mean to be Grace Fellowship? What does it mean to be a part of this local congregation and and we're going to look at the application of this in terms of the direction God has given us as a church, who we are, what we're about, where we're going, how we apply the specific things that God has sort of given to us generally as the body of Christ. And we're going to do that by talking about the church's motto now, the phrase motto is, uh, is a phrase that can be a little bit confusing. What is the difference, for instance, between a motto and, say, a mission statement, or a, a motto and a vision statement, or a purpose statement? It's, they're not the same things, but they're connected, and the idea of a motto is that it's a little more brief and a little more encapsulated. I actually looked it up, and uh, Oxford's dictionary says this, a motto is a short sentence or phrase chosen as encapsulating the beliefs or ideals guiding an individual, a family, or an institution. It is a brief, memorable, short, direct way to speak in general about what we're about. And so we have a motto at Grace Fellowship and it's not the same as our mission statement and it's a little different than those other things, but it's, it's straightforward and it gets the point across. And at Grace Fellowship, our motto is simple uh, and it helps us to remember why God has called us together as a church family and how we sort of measure whether we're about the business God has called us to be about as a church. And if you've been in this church for any length of time, it's undoubtedly familiar to you. Our church motto is loving God, loving people, changing the world. And we have tried over the years to make that prominent in as many ways as we can. Back in the olden days, before we had these screens up here, it was on this wall. Giant letters, loving God, loving people, changing the world. Now you'll see it on the screens portrayed sometimes. Um, Back in the olden days when we used to have church bulletins, it was in the church bulletin every week. Um, It is on our church website. You can go to the page that says About Us on the church website. Click on that and it will give you a section on loving God, loving people, changing the world, um, we, we put it into sermons all the time and talk about that as an application point. It takes place in conversations between people in this church that we're about loving God, loving people, and changing the world. I came in today, I saw Chris was wearing a shirt that says, loving God, loving people, and I wanted to just get a mark and write changing the world underneath that. Um, For the next three weeks, we're going to be taking a closer look at what is meant by this motto. And for me, um, to be honest, this is challenging because what I am uh, sort of bent to do is to spend about six months on each one of those statements. Um, because the Bible is just filled with information. What we've basically done in this motto is try to say, hey, what does everything in the Bible tell us we're supposed to be about as a church? And put it into one quick little motto. So for me, it's a challenge to break it down and go, I'm going to spend a week on each of these three, and I don't even really get a week on the first one because I'm spending time doing this introduction. So it's going to be a little bit challenging for me, but... um, it's not the goal this time around to expand as far as we can and give every bit of detail about this. Really, um, the goal is to be to do something a little bit different. Um, in simplest terms, we're just going to think about what it means to be a part of this church and why. So that If you see yourself as a part of this church family, you will know what we're all about. If you're new around here, this will be incredibly informative, very, very helpful for you to hear and think about and then converse in your grace groups, which I know by now you have all signed up for. A little plug there. Um, Grace groups starting their meetings this week. By the way, don't forget to show up at your grace group this week, and you'll be talking about some of this stuff. Um, If you've been a part of this church for a long time, this is going to serve as kind of a checkup for you to stop and go, hey, how, how am I doing as part of this church? How are we doing as a congregation? Um, and even if you're just passing through and, and you're here on vacation and you're never going to come back and see any of these people again, um, I'm hoping this will give you a basic but biblical view of what it means to be a healthy local church made up of people who are um, about more than just showing up and serving themselves. So that's kind of where we're going with this. So let's get into it, and let's begin with the most foundational aspect of the Christian life, which is loving God. Now, um, when I started thinking, I'm going to preach on loving God, uh, it feels like loving God should be the most extravagant expression of love in my life. And I started going off because my mind is um, a little, I, I started going off in a bunch of tangents and directions in my thinking about extravagant acts of love. And so, then, next thing I know, I'm on the internet. I'm doing searches for examples of extravagant acts of love, and I came on the internet across this story from Ripley's Believe It or Not. You know, if it's in Ripley's Believe It or Not, you can believe it or not. (laughs) Anyway, it, it is it is listed as the longest expression of love in history. And it is a love letter. It's written in 1875 by a French artist by the name of Marcel de Clure, And it is addressed to the woman who had stolen his heart, Magdalena de Villa Villalora, which that probably sounds really different in French. Um, and it contains the phrase, Je veux I love you. Je vois me over and 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 over again. One phrase written in a love letter, 1,875,000 times. 1,000 times for every year because it was the year 1875. And, and don't worry, he didn't get writer's cramp. He didn't actually write it himself. He hired a scribe to come every day and write it. Now, if that were me and I was gonna do this extravagant crazy thing, I would have said to the scribe, write, je 1,875,000 times and come get me when you're done. That's not what he did. He stated it, the guy wrote it and read it back to him. He stated it again, the guy wrote it and read it back to him 1,875,000 times. So if you're great at math, you know that the total expressions of this statement came out to a grand total of 5,625,000 times just in the compilation of this love letter that was then sent to this young lady so that he could share his heart with her. I sincerely hope she was impressed. (laughs) My guess is she ran like a scared person. Is this a great example of love? (laughs) It's certainly a great example of foolishness. Certainly a great example of too much time on my hands. Um, But let's be honest, extravagant and foolish acts have been associated with love for a very, very long time, right? I did a Google search on extravagant ways to express love, and I came across this travel company's website, and they gave 10 ways to make Valentine's Day special. Listen up, guys, because your wives are hearing this, your girlfriends are hearing this. You're going to be held accountable to this. 10 ways to make this year's Valentine's Day special. Number one, spend the day on a private yacht. Now, I know what you're saying. You're saying we do that all the time, so what else (laughs) could we do? Number two, reach for the sky in a hot air balloon. Number three, buy a membership to an exclusive club. Number four, book a chartered flight on a private jet. Number five, book a cross-country trip on a first-class luxury train. Number six, Book the honeymoon or presidential suite at a five-star luxury hotel for a week. My wife doesn't even want to be with me for a week. Number seven, write a love song and book a recording studio to record yourself singing it. Another thing my wife doesn't want me to do. Number eight, fly to Dubai for the ultimate shopping experience. Number nine, buy and give expensive designer jewelry. And number 10, take a cruise around the world. What do you think? (laughs) Are those great expressions of love? How about this one? How about this one? For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Or how about this one? Greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Or what about this one? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Expensive gifts might be nice, but true love is something that money absolutely cannot buy. I know this is true because the Beatles said so. <laughs> so let's go to Mark chapter 12 and look at what has come to be known as the great commandment. In your New Testament, when you get to the New Testament, it goes Matthew and then Mark. And so it's very early in the New Testament. You're going to go to chapter 12 of Mark and uh, this well-known passage where Jesus is being questioned. Uh, And let me just read to you these verses. We're going to begin in verse 28 of Mark chapter 12. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the, f- the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Now, let me give you some context to this, because we just jumped right in, dropped into Mark chapter 12. This is the Wednesday of Passion Week. In two days, Jesus will be hanging on a cross. And so, you know, he, you, you know the story, there was the triumphal entry, he was going in and out of the city that week. On Tuesday, the day before this happened, in this very same spot where they're now standing, he had overturned the tables and chased out the money changers and those who were selling animals and turned the temple of God into a marketplace. He had caused all kinds of conflict. He had caused all kinds of And the, the uh, religious leaders were not happy with him. That was Tuesday. This is Wednesday. And uh, Jesus gives them the great commandment in response to a question that is asked to him. And this statement has come to be known as the great commandment, not just a commandment, it's the commandment. This is, in simplest terms, what it is to know and love God. And refusal to obey this command is the reason that hell will be eternally populated. Now, I I know that, um, you know, it's the 21st century and we're not supposed to talk about hell and church, but I I want us to think about this for a second, and this is going to help us with the context, so you're going to leave a finger there and mark, and you're going to go back to the Old Testament, to the fifth book, which is the book of Deuteronomy. And I want you to go to Deuteronomy, where most of you were probably reading in your quiet time this morning, I want you to go to Deuteronomy chapter 5. And it's here in Deuteronomy chapter 5 that we're given the Ten Commandments. And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, I just want to pick it up in verse 7. This is the beginning of the Ten Commandments, okay? Here we go. You shall have no other gods before me. That's verse 7. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing kindness, loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. One of the things that is happening here is that God is making a very um, simplistic statement But he is saying, hey, you could categorize from God's point of view, you could categorize all people into one of two categories. Did you notice the two categories? Those who hate God and those who love God. He boils it down. He goes, there's, there's punishment for those who hate me and there is loving kindness for those who love me and we like to have all kinds of gray area there and God goes, hey, you're either a God lover or you're a God hater. And it goes on to give these commandments and says if you want to show your love, to show your love for God, then you will keep these commandments. He says, showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now let's get back to Jesus and his declaration of the great commandment in Mark chapter 12. It's passion week. It's Wednesday. They're already mad at him. The religious leaders, the priests and the, and the scribes, they're, they're basically these two major groups and a couple of smaller groups. There's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're, they're all on the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council of Israel, and yet it's almost like Republicans and Democrats. They don't agree on much. They're fighting all the time. For instance, the Pharisees uh, are convinced that the entire Old Testament is the law, that the entire Old Testament, everything that Moses wrote, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the wisdom literature, all of the prophets and all the historical books that you put it all together and go, this is the word of God. This is the law of Moses. That's what the Pharisees believed. The Sadducees believed only the first five books, the books of Moses were scripture Everything else was just some sort of rabbinical writing that could be informative, but wasn't considered the word of God. And so they had significant disputes about what it meant to be a truly God-honoring Jew based on the fact that they didn't agree on what was the definition of scripture, right? So they were always fighting. They couldn't agree on much, but the one thing that they could agree on was the Pentateuch, the five books. They all agreed that is the word of God. And they felt that Jesus was against Moses. That Jesus was trying to do away with the teaching of Moses. That Jesus was uh, always uh, bringing up issues related to the law. And therefore he must be against Moses. He must be against the Mosaic law. And that's one of the many reasons they wanted to do away with him. And so one of their tactics was they would send people to ask him difficult trick questions especially when he's in a crowd full of others so that no matter how he answers, he's gonna make somebody mad because they were threatened by his popularity. Jesus is immensely popular with the people and they don't know what to do about this. They just need to get rid of him. And so they they gathered together. They conspired. They came up with the perfect question that is certain to make the people mad because after all, this guy's against Moses. This guy's against the law. This guy doesn't want us to follow the traditions and the teachings of the scripture. And so they send this guy to ask him, hey, what is the great commandment? And this takes place in the courtyard of the temple, the very place that was filled with money changers the day before. The, the tension is thick. You can cut it with a knife. All the priests are around. It's a, it's, there's thousands of people in the court and they're all gathering around Jesus and listening to what he has to say. And this guy raises his hand and says, teacher, I have a question for you. And they asked him what the greatest commandment was, and they obviously expected him to say something completely new, because after all, he's a new teacher who's come to replace Moses. They didn't think he could get it right. But instead, he gave them the perfect textbook answer. He went to the most foundational doctrinal statement in the Old Testament, which is known as the Shema, and, and every Jewish child was taught the Shema from the time that they could speak. This was the scripture that was put in the phylacteries that were on the foreheads of the priests and worn around their wrists. It was written on the doorposts of their homes. Every Jewish person knew the Shema. And the, Shema, the word Shema means hear because Shema begins with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one God. Right? Why was that so important? Because they lived in a world of paganism. They were surrounded by pagans. Everywhere they went, people believed there were many gods. There was a sun god and a moon god and a river god. And there was a god for everything. And so it was like a competition of the gods. You would pray and make sacrifices to certain gods to get them to do what you wanted because you could manipulate these little man-made, made-up gods. And when Israel becomes established in the Old Testament, God says, let's make one thing clear. I am God and there are no other gods. So the beginning of the commandments is, I, the Lord, am one God. You will have no other gods and you will not even make any idols to worship them. And out of that comes what is known as the Shema, which everyone has memorized by this point. This is what sets Jewish people apart from the pagans that are all around them. They believe in only one God. And that's a great thing because when there's only one God, you don't have to split up your allegiance between all the gods. You can wholeheartedly follow the one God. You can give all of your devotion to the one God. You don't have to worry that there's going to be some other God you're going to make mad when you're worshiping this God, and then you're going to tick him off because you went over here and worshiped that God. There is only one God. And so you can give him everything. You can give him all of your love. You can give him all of your devotion. You can love God wholeheartedly. And he says, you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your mind, and all of your soul. That's what it says in Deuteronomy. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. And Jesus adds, and strength. Heart, mind, soul, and strength. What's he saying? With the, every fiber of your being. You give yourself completely to God. Now, it's very tempting for preachers to break down a heart and do a sermon on loving God with all your heart, another one with loving God with all your mind, another one loving God with all your soul, trying to define those terms. But heart, mind, soul, and strength was a way that Jews talked about with your whole being. That's the idea. So we're not gonna break it down and go, how are you doing at loving God with your mind? That's not the point. In fact, heart, mind, and soul in Jewish thinking, are all sort of mixed together, right? It means with the inner person. Now, how big a deal is this? That you're to love God wholeheartedly. How important is this really? We're going to think about it Old Testament and New Testament. How big of a deal is this? Now, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to go back to Deuteronomy real quick, and I'm just going to read you a bunch of verses uh, from various spots in Deuteronomy. I'm going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1. Deuteronomy 11:1 says this, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep his charge, his statues, his ordinances, and his Commandments skip down verse 13 and it shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments which I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul that he will give you rain for your land in its season the early and the late rain that you will gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil and he goes on to talk about the blessings that come if you will love God and keep his commandments skip down to verse 22 for if you are careful to keep all This commandment, which I'm commanding you to do, to love the Lord your God. See, we think of the commandments and we're like rules and jobs, things we have to do or not do, things we have to keep. He's going, No, no, the commandment is love God with all of your heart and therefore obey Him, right? It's not obey God and maybe you'll come to love Him. It is love Him and out of that heart of love comes obedience. And that's what He says. Um, to love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways and hold fast to him. Then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Now guys, this is the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of Moses. And basically what you have in the book of Deuteronomy is the last days of Moses' life. They are now camped outside of Jericho. They have spent how long in the wilderness? 40 years. It takes a few days to walk from Egypt to Canaan. And they have been in the wilderness for 40 years until all of the unfaithful generation has passed away. And these people who are now coming into the promised land are the children of the people. They were born in the wilderness for the most part. And Moses, when he knows that he is not going to be allowed to go into the land gathers the people for one last public address, and that's the book of Deuteronomy. And in the book of Deuteronomy, standing with the Jordan River behind him and the city of Jericho on the other side of the Jordan River, he says, you're about to go into this land, so I'm going to remind you of what is most important. These are Moses's famous last words. Go on, we're gonna go to um, Deuteronomy 13. In Deuteronomy 13, verse one, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him, and cling to him. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, this theme continues. And I skipped a bunch of verses where I could have read to you. In Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 9, here's what it says. If you carefully observe all this commandment which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways always, then you shall add three more cities for yourself Besides these three, he's telling them about the cities they're going to inherit in the promised land. In other words, I'm going to multiply my blessings to you if you will love me with all of your heart. Deuteronomy chapter 30, as we come near the close of the book, Deuteronomy 30 and verse six, moreover, the Lord, your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, so that you may live. The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and those who hate you, who persecuted you. Down to verse 16. In that command... In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. Skip down to verse 20. By loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for this is your life. Moses says, famous last words. This is your life. In other words, we can't afford to get this wrong. We can't afford to get it wrong as individuals. We cannot afford to get it wrong as families. We cannot afford to get it wrong as a local church. This is your life. Now, I'm gonna ask you to go all the way to the back of your New Testament to the book of Revelation And we're going to hear what Jesus, this is the ascended Jesus who is in heaven addressing the churches through the apostle John in Revelation chapter 2. How big of a deal is this? We're about to find out. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Jesus is speaking. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? That's Ephesus, the book of Ephesians is written to the church at Ephesus, one of the most prominent churches of the New Testament era, and Jesus addresses that local church, and here's what he says to that local church, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds, and your toil, and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put them to the test, those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Wouldn't you love to have God say something like that to you? so proud of them. You guys have done so well. You have developed as a church to the point where you know the difference between truth and falsehood. You're no longer being led astray by every wind of doctrine like we talked about last week. Instead of that, you don't put up with false teachers. You move them out of the church. You've, you've kept a purity of the word of God in your church and life has been hard for you. You've been persecuted and yet you have endured. Jesus is, is um, commending the Ephesian church. And man, how they wish he had stopped there. Continue in verse four. But I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent And do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. The removal of the lampstand, the lampstand is symbolic of a church. He says, I'm gonna remove the lampstand, you're gonna cease to exist as a church because you've lost your first love. He says, You went to seminary, you got all the doctrine right, you passed the test. You're writing books, correcting the false teaching that is going on in these other towns. Wow, haven't you been amazing? They they had Paul as their pastor. You think that they focused on theology a little bit in that church? Paul was their founding pastor and then was replaced by Timothy. Timothy. These people, they were were the standard for how to hold up truth and persevere and stand for what is good and stand for what is right. Guys, I just want to tell you, sometimes in the American, for lack of a better term, evangelical or Bible-believing church, we are guilty of the very thing that he accuses the Ephesians of. We get all the answers right We can argue eloquently and win the debate and write papers for a seminary class that explain the ins and outs of predestination and dispensationalism and whatever other kind of isms the theologians are arguing about these days. And we can do it beautifully and it's so impressive when we get an A on all of our papers and the people who are outside of who are watching to see whether our claims are true are watching our lives and they're going, where's the stinking love? We've gotta be very, very careful about this. We're gonna talk next week about the love people side of this, and believe me, I've got plenty to say. But for now, we're just thinking about loving God. He goes, you have lost your first love. Remember when you used to just love me, Jesus says? But now, it's come down to just winning the arguments. And he says, you need to repent. Turn around and go back to where you started. Where did you start? The love of God. Get back to loving God. Guys, we can get everything else right, but if you get the love of God wrong, he won't allow you to be his church. And that raises an important question then. If if loving God is this important, Old Testament to New Testament, beginning to end, if loving God is this important, important, it raises a question for me, what does that look like? How do you go about loving God? I mean, let's get practical. Let's not just fill our minds with this idea. Well, okay, I love you more than I did yesterday, Lord. What does it look like to actually love him? Can we all agree that um, our society has enough of platitude love and not a love, not enough of actual love? And and so let's get practical. What does it look like to love God? For one thing, when I think about loving people, I think about meeting needs. Let's take a minute and just in our own minds compile a list of the things God needs. <laughs> Nothing. God is self-sufficient. He has no needs. So do you think God is saying, I want you to love me so that somebody will bring me stuff. I want you to love me so I'll have somebody to give me some money to build my fancy buildings. I want you to love me so that you'll sacrifice animals and somehow the smell of that impresses me. God doesn't need anything. So as a practical minded person, that's hard for me. Okay, what, what am I supposed to do? Am I just supposed to have warm feelings about God? What does it look like to love God? God? Well, I'm just going to give you a few things to think about here. But if you're going to love God in practical life, let's start here. First of all, you have to know him. You have to know him. This is not a set of tasks to perform. This is not a set of religious hoops to jump through to impress God and earn his favor. Jesus came and left the throne of heaven and went to the cross of Calvary and rose again so that you and I could have a relationship with God. So you have to start by knowing him. Nothing matters more than that relationship with God. Um, The Apostle Paul wrote about this in numerous places. I want you to go to Philippians. We're gonna be bouncing around our New Testaments a little bit. Philippians, and I want you to go to chapter three of Philippians. Philippians chapter three, Paul has just explained his history as a Pharisee. He was one of these guys, very likely, that was in the courtyard that day when Jesus said this is the great commandment. He was a Pharisee, he was a scholar, he went to all the right schools, he uh, grew up in the right family, he was from the right nation, he had the right birthright, he got A's on all of his tests and he arose in the ranks of priests uh, among the Jews and became a Pharisee of Pharisees, the Bible says. And he has just given us at the beginning of chapter 3 this uh, history lesson about all of the credentials that he brought to uh, bear as a Pharisee. And here's what he says, pick it up in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. Do you see what He's saying? All of these religious things I've been able to do to impress the masses, but you know what? All I want is Jesus. All I want is to know him. All I want is to know that I'm in his presence, that I'm pleasing to him, that I'm becoming more like him, and that's the prize that I press on toward again and again, that one day I will stand before him and give an account for my life, and I want him to say, well done, that I may know him. Nothing matters more. And, and following that, and we saw this certainly uh, in all those verses in Deuteronomy where it talks about love the Lord your God and keep his commandments. Obey him. We're to know him and we're to obey him. In John chapter 14, we won't go there today because uh, you're not listening fast enough, but in John chapter 14, um, Jesus has this, this conversation with his disciples Where he says, Those who love me will keep my words. And those who do not keep my words do not love me. John chapter 14, verse 23 and 24. So so we're going to know him, we're going to obey him, we're going to worship him. If we went back to John chapter 4, we would find the famous picture of Jesus meeting with the Samaritan woman at the well, and he goes, the day is coming when all those people who love me will worship me in spirit and truth. The mark of love is to worship him. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says this, and you can look this up this week on your own. He says this, um, therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home in the body or absent from the body, to be pleasing to him. That, that I love him by living to please him, which to me is the most freeing thing in the world because every other standard of success gets wiped out and God says, you wanna know the definition of success? Live a life moment by moment and day by day that pleases God. And he goes on to tell us that that is possible for us if we're in Christ. So, So we literally have the option Every time we come to a crossroads of choosing a route that will be pleasing to him. And when we realize we have failed to do that, we can repent and confess and return to being pleasing to God. He says, if you're going to love me, live to please me, live to glorify me. And so as we close, let me ask you to think about this. Why do you think God has made such a big deal from Genesis to Revelation about this standard to love God wholeheartedly? Why did he make it such a big deal? I think one reason is because God knows that in this life, we are distracted by so many things, so many other things. We all have jobs to do and bosses who have commands that they are making of us, standards that are being set for us. We have relationships that are important to us. We need money. We have responsibilities. We love to set worldly goals and chase our dreams. We love to collect stuff, and whenever someone uh, jingles something shiny in front of us, we chase after it. And God knows that we are tempted to live this way in this world. And so he's there on the top of the mountain waving his arms and saying, Stop it. Just love me. Just love me. He says, Do not love the things of this world, but love him. He knows what it's like for us. Jesus is a high priest who sympathizes with us. He's been tempted in all the ways that we have been tempted we need to be reminded over and over again that the most foundational thing in life is to love God. If we get that right, everything else falls into place. And if we get that wrong, nothing else matters. So here's the question I want to leave you with this week it's kind of personal. How's your love life? Are are you living out the great commandment to love God and love people? We'll start with loving God this week. Next week, we'll talk more about loving people. But for now, I want to challenge you to take a practical step. Don't just nod your head and go, yes, I should do better at that. Find a way to make this practical in your life this very week. Maybe what you need to do is set aside some specific time to spend with him you have people who tell you they love you and never spend time with you? Seems like an empty promise, doesn't it? That, that you would set aside some time to spend with him. In prayer and worship and the reading of his word. That there might be an area of your life and you would know what it would be and I, I would have no idea. But there might be an area of your life you need to relinquish to him something you need to say, God, I've been holding on to this thing because it somehow makes me feel more comfortable or makes me feel better about myself, or it's a coping mechanism, or it keeps me from turning to you. And I'm just going to give this to you, God. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn away from that, which pulls me away from you. Maybe that's what needs to happen practically in your life today, uh, this week. Maybe you need to decide you're going to actually share the love of Jesus with somebody else. Tell them about what God's done in your life. I don't know what it is that you need to do to make this practical, but let me just say this. He's already made his love for us undeniably clear at the cross. How are you loving him back? It's a good practical question to take home with you this week. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you as those who are humbled again in your presence, reminded of all that you've done for us. Not, not a word that we talked about today was about how we need to get you to love us. You have already loved us. And the, the scripture says, we can only love you because you first loved us. And so we want to thank you for that love, that unconditional love, that gracious love, that never-ending love, that love that is enough, that love that wasn't just sentimental and wasn't just theoretical, but was practical and went and bled on the cross to set us free from the penalty of our sins. Lord, we thank you that you love us. And we pray, God, that you would help us just to grow as those who love you. There's nothing more important. Help us to be lovers of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can go watch football now.